Hey everyone, welcome to the Warren Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Russell Warren. I'm the author of The Warren Letter, a weekly financial newsletter that discusses everything from macroeconomics to crypto, bonds, finances, personal finance, and real estate investing. Um, it's pretty much anything I want to discuss or, or, or talk about that week, any of the big news. Um, there's a lot of things that I can't discuss in the newsletter, um, just because sometimes written word is not the best format. For some things it is, and for some things um, it's much easier to have you know a time to where I can explain, like here on this podcast. So I appreciate you all listening into this. Um, you know, listening back to my old podcast, there's a few things that I've, I've you know, when you when you hear yourself speak, it uh, it always brings this kind of you know, embarrassment on yourself, right? You, you don't think you sound this way. And so there's a few things that I notice when I speak in previous podcasts. I say, I'm a lot, and I say, you know a lot. And so on this podcast, I'm going to try my best not to say those those two kind of filler words. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful spring day here in New Mexico. As some of you may know, I live um, in New Mexico, in northern New Mexico, at about 7,000 feet. Um, spring is finally sprung. Um, I see the uh, leaves budding on the trees. The birds are out chirping. Um, there's no snow in the forecast, which you know some of you may be surprised to know that where I live, except snow is New York City, so um, it's not it's not the kind of South Desert New Mexico that you think of. I live, you know, in the mountains. There's a lot of trees and and wildlife and things like that. So. It's just a beautiful spring day here, and I'm glad that you're, you're all able to listen to this podcast either live or, uh, or on a recording. Um, it was a crazy week in markets. Um, I, wanted, I want to go through and I want to discuss markets in terms of how we move this week and where I see things going in the future. Um, I'm going to discuss bonds uh, because the move in bonds has just been unprecedented. This has been the fastest rise in the yield in since 1994. Um, I want to discuss mortgage rates. I'm going to discuss some books that I've been reading that I really like and some of the, some of the lessons from these books. And then I'm going to talk about trading mentality, um, how I like to trade, um, some of the ways that, you know, the psychology of trading and how trading can affect affect your day-to-day life. And so that's kind of the, the summary of, of what I'm going to discuss in this podcast. But let's talk about the wild week in markets. Um, so if you've been following the markets, you know that on Monday uh, was a big up day. Um, the VIX got down to around $20. And I was watching this. And, you know, I... I view the market now from a bearish lens before I was kind of at an, I would say a neutral lens in between a bull and a bear. Now I'm viewing the market as a bearish lens. Precipitous rise in the, uh, particularly in the QQQ, the NASDAQ ETF. And I said, this is not going to last. Um, I knew foam C minutes were coming out on Wednesday. And so I started buying every hour. I started buying uh, a block of, put positions in the QQQ. And, you know, on Monday, I felt like an idiot because every time I would buy, the price of the put premium would be lower 
in the previous price. But I knew if I could average into the position, I knew after the foam C minutes, I knew after reality hit investors that this market, especially the QQQ, the NASDAQ was on its way down. So I bought the big, the largest position I've ever you know, bought in my life that I've ever traded in my life into the QQQs on Monday. Monday night, you know, I, I let the position sit overnight. I was extremely nervous. And then on Tuesday, uh, the Fed, one of the Fed chiefs, uh, Liel Brainerd, came out and she was extremely hawkish. And when I say extremely hawkish, I mean from the perspective of how the Fed normally operates. To me, listening to it is not hawkish enough for the inflation problem that we have. But she came out and was extremely hawkish. And I want to give some quotes that she said, which is the reason that created the uh, big tank in the markets on Tuesday and Wednesday. So uh, I have the CNBC article up and it says, Fez Brainerd sees balance sheet reduction soon and at a rapid pace. Fed Governor Brainerd said that Tuesday, the central bank could start reducing its balance sheet soon, as soon as May, and we'll be doing so at a rapid pace. She also indicated interest rate hikes could come at a more aggressive pace in the typical increments of 0.25 percentage points. So we, you know, I've been saying this for a long time that inflation is now a political problem. It's the number one economic problem um, in numerous recent polls. Uh, Politicians are getting worried that inflation is going to unseat them from power and inflation is now you know, the, on everyone's minds, it's no longer a uh, focus on people who are into finance and who trade the markets that are worried about inflation. Everybody sees the effects of inflation at the gas pump, at the grocery store. Um, if you're in any kind of construction, home building, real estate, I mean, you can see that inflation is out of control. And I've seen this for a while and was wondering um, what the Fed was going to do about it because they ha- they're really pushed themselves into a corner here because if they fight inflation, they're going to tank markets. And if they don't fight inflation, inflation is going to keep going out of control. So I knew at a certain point the Fed was going to have to um, step in and say enough is enough with inflation. And it looked like they sent Brainerd out on Tuesday as kind of, you know, to test the waters and to to ease the approach into the FOMSI minutes, which came out on, on Wednesday. And the minutes basically said that the Fed is going to uh, prune the balance sheet by $95 billion a month, which is what I consider a slow pace. But when the Fed has been adding to the balance sheet at the pace of trillions of dollars per year, um, you know, this is very, very different. You're going instead of instead of not adding to the balance sheet, you're actually pruning the balance sheet. This is huge. This is going to cause serious, serious, you know, reverberations throughout the bond market, throughout the equity market. And it did. Um, The QQQ was down 5% on the week. Um, The S&P 500 did a lot better. It was down uh, 1.4%. The VIX shot up to 24 and then dropped back down to 21, which I think it's going to, it's going to breach 45, 50 and 60 here, here pretty soon. Um, Oil, Oil is hovering right around $100 a barrel. I think it's at 97 a barrel, the latest I checked. And gold. Gold's uh, been holding up in this in this $1,900 to $2,000 range. We're sitting right in the middle right now at, at, at $1,950. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin's 
the same way. It's kind of range bound between uh, 40,000 and 48,000. Right now it's sitting at 42,430. And so, you know, people always ask me my opinions on Bitcoin. What do I think about Bitcoin? Um, people like to label me as a gold bug. And I wouldn't say that's necessarily true. You know, the stereotypes that come with that. I do believe in gold as a, as a long-term store of wealth and inflation hedge and investment. However, I do see some benefit in Bitcoin. For me personally, the main benefit to Bitcoin is came from watching what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. And what I mean by that is particularly watching the lines of refugees that are fleeing their homes um, with a last minute notice with only things that they can carry on their back. Um, it would be, you know, there are ways to get around it, but it would be very difficult to flee a country with, uh, you know, gold in your pants, gold hidden um, in your backpack, things like that. Very, very liable to get stolen. It's going to be heavy. And, you know, in the choice where you're evacuating a war zone, are you going to take your, your gold bars or are you going to take food, drinks, you know, protection mechanisms, things like that. And so for me, the, the value of Bitcoin is in the fact that if you owned a lot of Bitcoin, you could flee Ukraine into any one of these countries uh, as long as you can get Internet access, access your wallet and, you know, your wealth is, is pretty well able to be transferred into whatever currency um, of whatever country you're living in. And I think that's, that's a huge advantage. The only downside there and the only downside to, to Bitcoin that I'm seeing is the price is so volatile, which I'll say lately it's kind of come into a range. The price is so volatile, you might flee Ukraine thinking you have, you know, say $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. And by the time you get to Poland, your Bitcoin is now worth $80,000. So um, I think I think there is a, a happy medium there. And I think there is a use case for Bitcoin. Um, but in terms of investment, uh, I, you know, I don't know and I can't see what makes the price go up and down. I, but I can predict pretty accurately and pretty well what makes the prices of index, you know, the indices go up and down. And so I stay away from Bitcoin as an investment, but I do see utility in Bitcoin um, for, you know, worldwide transactions and, and, and things like that. And if you need to flee out of a war zone uh, with nothing but the shirt and the clothes on your back, Bitcoin can can help you make sure you preserve your wealth. So I do think that is a, a, a very advantageous use of Bitcoin. Um, okay, let's talk about bonds. Uh, the bond market, I mean, if you look at a chart of the 10-year yield on the gov U.S. government treasury, it looks like a meme stock. I mean, it is it has gone up. I, I wrote some statistics here. The 10-year U.S. treasury yield has gone up 68% in the last six months. And it's gone up 14% in the last five days. For anyone who knows the markets, who follows the markets, th these kind of moves are, are unprecedented. Unprecedented moves. Uh, you do not see moves like this in the bond market. The bond market is usually very sleepy, very, you know, very quiet. It moves, you know, incrementally slowly. This is uh, an unprecedented move in the, in the bond market. And I think it is being uh, orchestrated you know, by these uh, different Fed leaders that are coming out and, and trying to push the bond market to almost do the, their work, right? So if they can raise the bond market and kind of cap inflation with higher yields, 
Um, they'll have less to do in terms of balance sheet reduction and things like that. So they're trying to, to, to talk the bond, you know, the bond market down, meaning the yields up in order to um, try and put a lid on inflation. But I mean, this, this rise, this, this is the worst yield rise in the worst week for prices of bonds since 1994. Um, and, you know, this, this has reverberations throughout the market. Um, all these growth companies that are relying on 0% interest rates uh, now are not going to be able to finance at that rate. Companies that do stock buybacks, you know, the, you know, from 2017 to 2020, I mean, even 2021, um, you know, stock buybacks were just huge. Companies would borrow at 0%, buy back their stock, which would push it up. It would create uh, a higher bonus, higher pay rate for CEOs. And the stock would rise and everybody loved it and it was great. But if companies can't borrow with 0% anymore, um, stock, stock buybacks may not be the best allocation of capital. And so that's going to affect uh, equity prices as well as, you know, any company that's relying on debt is not going to be able to borrow at the rates that they were able to borrow. And that is going to affect bottom lines. It's going to affect earnings. It's going to affect uh, PE ratios. I mean, this is going to have a, a, a big effect on the market. This want, you know, it's not only the, the fact that 2.7% uh, yield on the, on the 10-year treasury is significantly higher than, than, you know, the lows of the pandemic, which I think was like 0.4%. It's the fact it's the rapid rate of rise. You know, if, if this was a slow rise over five or 10 years, companies would be able to adjust, the market would be able to adjust to that. But the fact that this, this has risen so rapidly is what makes it dangerous. The, you know, banks often base the 30-year mortgage rate off of the 10-year treasury yield. And the mortgage rate just hit a four-year high at 5.04%. So in the depths of the pandemic, you could have refinanced, people could have refinanced for about 2.4%, 2.3%, I think is the lowest I've seen. And now that mortgage rate is 5.04%. That's an almost doubling of the mortgage rate in 18 months. That means that the interest that you pay on that mortgage has almost doubled in just the last 18 months, which is of clearly going to affect uh, the housing market. Uh, you know, and you can see that already. I mean, I see it. I work in uh, large ranches and recreational real estate. And you could already see, you know, if people are trying to finance these land deals, the interest rates they're getting are way higher than they were previously. And that's only just in the last six months. This is going to go through the entire housing market. And what's, what's interesting is in 2014, a book came out it's called The Aftershock Investor. It was written by a PhD. His name was David Weidmeier, uh, also written by Sandy Spitzer. They co-wrote the book together. And this book, I bought it in 2014 and I thought a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the lessons in it, a lot of the forecast were pretty accurate, um, pretty spot on and were, were likely to come true. The problem that this book had uh, was that it was a little early. It was a little early for its time. A lot of the things that this book predicted in 2014 uh, didn't come true in 2016, 2017, 2018. So people kind of dismissed the book and forgot about it and, and, and basically said, you know, they're wrong. They were wrong. However, 
I went back through this book the other day because I just moved. So I was going through my books and I saw it. I kind of dusted off the, the cover and I saw, okay, the Aftershock Investor. And I went through and I started reading some of this stuff. And a lot of the stuff that they predicted in 2014 is actually coming through today. And one of the most interesting charts that they have in this book, it's actually on page, um, let's see here, page 174. And what they have is they have a chart where they show how in each one percentage rise in the mortgage rate, the value of homes drops. So this, this chart assumes in, in 2014, this is what it was, a 4% mortgage rate, 30-year fixed rate mortgage. This shows that if a, if a interest rate, if a mortgage rate is at 4% and rises to 5%, that decreases the value of the home by 11%. If the mortgage rate rises to 7.5% from 4%, that decreases the value of the home by 32%. If it rises to 10% from 4%, that increases the, the decreases the value of the home by 45%. Can you, I mean, and it's, it is not impossible. We went from a two and a half percent mortgage rate to a 5% mortgage rate. It is not impossible to reach a seven and a half percent mortgage rate, a 10% mortgage rate. I mean, in the, in the late seventies, when Paul Volcker was trying to stop inflation, we were at 18% mortgage rates. I mean, this was crazy, crazy high mortgage rates. And so, you know, when I tweet out stuff like, Hey, the mortgage rate's gone up to 5%. This is, this is catastrophic. People tweet back at me and they say, oh, that's nothing. When I first bought my house, it was 8%, 9%. Yeah, but do you realize what the increase in mortgage rates does to the value of the home? So I'm going to read this little ex excerpt to you. You know, It's pretty quick from this book. And I, and I would just like you all to just take, take a minute to kind of absorb this and understand what rising interest rates from going from 0% for, for 10 years to these rising interest rates, what this is going to do. And it says here, rising inflation due to massive money printing to support the failing bubbles will drive interest rates up significantly. And without an endless supply of low interest rates, uh, the argument for the bubble itself falls apart. As interest rates rise and mortgages become more expensive, you can kiss what is left of the real estate bubble goodbye. On the way up, this bubble was fueled by low interest rates and easy lending, allowing people to buy houses they would not be able to afford under normal conditions. But with higher mortgage rates, more money will go toward the buyer's interest payments, leaving less money available to pay for the property. When people cannot afford something, they buy less of it, and then the price has to go down. Simple economics. Figure 8.1 shows how even relatively small rises in the mortgage rates can cause significant drops in home prices. So, and then it says the chart assumes the current mortgage rate is 4% and increase to 5% would force home prices down 11% to maintain the same monthly payment. So this is, you know, people may have paid higher mortgage rates in the past, but when you're going from a 2.5% to a 5%, I mean, even a 5% to a 7.5%, that decreases home values by 32%. Can you imagine what's going to happen to all the people who didn't refinance at these rock bottom rates? All the people who, who jumped into homes in the last year, basically in bidding wars, trying to buy any house that they could buy at any price. I mean, price has basically been thrown out the window, any kind of fair market analysis. I mean, I work in real estate and I bought a house in the past um, in the past few years. And I remember the appraisal. I mean, it was it was a joke, right? The realtor would email out to the appraiser. 
this is what we think, you know, this is what the, this is what the mortgage will allow. This is what we think the price is worth. Can you help us out? And no, no appraiser wants to come out and say, you know, Hey, this, this house really isn't worth this. So of course the appraiser comes out finds some comps and he values the home at, at, you know, or she values the home at whatever the realtor wants it to be to make the sale. And anyone who's, who's bought a home, got a mortgage can see and knows how that process works. And so, uh, this rise in interest rates is, is a, is a big deal. It's a, uh, it's, it's going to cause problems in the real estate market as well as the bond market and, and eventually the equity market, um, for the reasons I mentioned. So, um, you know, the fed, like I said, is, is going to try and bring down inflation. They're attacking inflation. I think it's, it's a good thing because inflation is out of control. And again, anyone could see it going to the gas pump, going to the food store, um, any kind of building materials, everything is on backlog. Everything's gone up in price. And inflation, what Charlie Munger said, Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's partner and very famous investor. Charlie Munger said inflation is what causes democracies to die. Um, he basically said that if inflation doesn't get under control, there's going to be food shortages. There's going to be people that are extremely upset people that just cannot afford things. And as inflation takes hold and becomes what people call sticky, meaning that certain prices that have gone up because of supply issues, because of easy money and printing, uh, won't go back down once the conditions resolve. They'll stay, they'll stick, they'll stay high. And so that could cause some you know, serious uh, socioeconomic problems. And so inflation needs to be um, dealt with and dealt with quickly but again, like I said, the Fed is kind of in a, backed into a corner because if they fight inflation, that's going to bring elevated stock prices down. And so there, there's going to have to be a balance. But I think the balance has shifted to where the Fed is willing to allow the economy to go into recession in order to stop uh, the inflationary fire that's been lit. Now, people can debate whether or not they think that's possible, whether they think that this needle can be can can be threaded here where we go into, you know, what they call a soft landing where the Fed's able to engineer kind of a soft recession or a mild recession, which brings down this these inflationary pressures and allows us to, you know, move on as an economy. You know, I'll leave that up to you, whether or not you think the Fed could do that, um, judging by their past history in, you know, 1987, 2000, 2007 and eight. Uh, I think, I, I think, you know, the answer to that. And so I think you should be positioned accordingly. Um, and, and so it's going to, it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see when they call chicken, if they do, you know, um, as the market starts going down, there's going to be calls from Congress. There's going to be investors getting very upset that they're, they're going to be losing money in their stock portfolios. And they're going to be freaking out on the Fed and the Fed is going to say, well, we're supposed to be fighting inflation. And it's going to be this big, this big struggle between how much pain can the Fed take, um, you know, to fight inflation before they give in and just say, well, we're just going to let inflation run wild because we can't have everyone's 401ks going down by 80%. So it's going to be an interesting few years to see how they can, how they can thread that needle. Um, and, you know, like, like I stated at the beginning of this podcast, I'm going to discuss my trading and, and how I traded uh, the market this week and some lessons that I learned from trading the market this week. And I hope that could be, could be helpful.
um, to some of you who do trade. Um, you know, trading is, I think it's probably about 80% psychology and 20% analysis and numbers. Um, on Monday, I knew, I knew the market was going to go down this week. I was sure of it, as sure as I could be. I, I've been studying the charts. I knew that uh, the foam steam minutes were going to come out hawkish. And I just knew it in my gut that buying put options on the QQQ, the NASDAQ ETF was going to work. So on Monday, as, as the market went up, I started buying put options every hour on the QQQ until I built what I thought was, you know, a position where my risk reward was kind of my risk tolerance was about met. But again, you know, this finished at about noon and the, and the QQQs rose from noon to, to uh, the close. And so I'm, I'm sitting there doubting myself saying, I, I think I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. You know, all these people on Twitter that were, that are messaging me and all people that I, that I talk to on a daily basis about trading are like, no, you know, this is the bottom. We're going to go up from here. You know, the NASDAQ went up almost 2% on Monday, even though in, in my heart and my analysis showed me, my gut was telling me that, that we were going to drop. You know, because we had to, uh, the, the NASDAQ is just so overvalued. And if you raise rates, it's going to drop. I just knew it. Yet when I'm buying, I'm sitting there watching the price go up. So that, that gives you this, this, this pause, this, this nervousness that maybe I am wrong. And, you know, a lot of times, not a lot of times, but 40 to you know, 30 to 40%, I'm wrong on trades, right? So that's why risk reward ratios are important. Risk tolerance uh, managing risk is important, but on this one, I was fairly convinced that the NASDAQ was going was to go down, but yet I'm watching it just go up and go up and my position, you know, the, the value of my account just going down and down and down. And I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe I was wrong. What do I do? And then the market closed. And, um, I basically said, I'm going to ride this out because I, I think I'm right. Um, I've been listening to, uh, you know, reading about a lot of, a lot of really good traders who, basically say that if you really believe you're right and you're right and you set kind of that risk tolerance level, you need to just gut it out, distract yourselves with other things and just wait because eventually it will hit. And so I didn't have to wait too long because Tuesday morning, the NASDAQ cratered as soon as Brainerd came out with those comments. Now, I didn't know Brainerd was going to come out and, and, you know, push the market down basically as a warning for what was going to come out on Wednesday. But I knew that that this market was going to have to go down because there's no one. It was it was overbought. The Nasdaq went up about 15 percent in three weeks and the conditions have not changed. And two, I knew that the, the minutes from FOMC were going to be released on Wednesday. So on Tuesday, I made a pretty good profit. I was pretty, pretty happy about it. You know, initially, my instinct told me that I should sell it on Tuesday, but I kept my put position. And the reason being is because one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in trading and I've missed out on so much money uh, is from not letting my winners run and not cutting my losers early, right? So you have to, if you're, if you're in a winning trade position and, and you, the, nothing fundamental in the market has changed, you need to let that winner run. You need to, you need to get, get the most profit you can out of the position because if you don't, uh, you're going to be cutting yourself short. And then on those other, you know, you need to, the big trades, the tra the winning trades need to make up for all the other trades where you lose and you cut those losses early. 
right? So you need to you need to have outsized gains on the trades where you were correct and cut your losses early on the trades where you were not. So on this QQQ, I said, okay, you know, I made a pretty good, pretty good amount of money, more money than I ever made in one day of trading on Tuesday, and said, I'm going to hold this and I'm going to let my winners run. I was, you know, I was nervous. I was thinking about it, but I tried to put it out of my head when the market was closed. Wednesday, we opened up immediately. As soon as, uh, uh, even before Foam C Minutes came out, immediately in the morning, we just dropped. And I made more money on Wednesday than I'd ever made trading in my whole life. And it's because I let my winner run. And um, I knew once those Foam C Minutes came out, uh, the market could have done anything. You know, uh, the market dropped about 6% before the Foam C Minutes came out. So I knew that if those minutes came out, that there were there was two things that could happen, obviously. One, that the, the minutes were going to be more hawkish than people expected and the market was going to drop more. Or two, it was going to be about what they expected and there was going to be a little relief rally. So I held my position. I said, you know what? I'm going to wait till the minutes come out. I think the minutes are going to be hawkish. And they were. They were hawkish. But the initial reaction from traders was, it's not that bad. It's only $95 billion a month. They're going to reduce the balance sheet. So it immediately shot up. And I've learned from watching the Fed multiple times, watching how the markets react to the Fed, that the usually the initial reaction from the markets is the incorrect one. So as soon as I saw it go up, I said, I'm buying more puts. Immediately bought more puts. And as soon as I did, it dropped. the market dropped another half a percentage. And my daily profit was more than I've ever made in a day trading and probably four or five times more than I ever made in a day trading. And I said, you know what? Um, everything's digested into this. Foam C minutes are already passed. Brainerd already came out with her, her uh, you know, little spiel about how we need to be aggressive. And so I sold my position and it was a, a, a great, a great, great, great trade. Um, I took Thursday off, which was what I always try and do because after a good trade, you should always take off, let yourself rest, let yourself enjoy the, you know, enjoy the win, um, you know, ride the high a little bit. And, and it, you know, it's very stressful on your body. I mean, when you're risking large amounts of money um, and, and you're, you're, you know, it's very, it's very stressful to your brain to be, to, to have this almost adrenaline rush without a physical outlet, right? You're just sitting there looking at a computer screen, listening to CNBC on the television, uh, you know, watching, you know, your money go up and down is very stressful. So I, you know, after a good win, I, and after a big loss, I always try and take a day off and just kind of enjoy myself and, and just let, you know, let it sink in. And then yesterday I, um, I opened up two new trades. I opened up a, uh, call option position on the on the S and P on the spy, because I think um, I watched the markets on Friday. Um, it was basically flat, and one of the other rules of trading is you never short a dull market. Um, the market basically flat. It ended a little. I think it down ended down 02 percent. Um, but I think, unless barring some some kind of incredible news over the weekend, I think Sunday night futures are going to ramp, and I think I think Monday is going to open high. Um, I think the market, you know, in the long term is headed down, but I think we're going to get a little bit of a pop here. Um, and I also, <laughs> I shorted AMC. I bought put positions on AMC because, well, for a multitude of reasons, but mostly because the, 
the culture around people that are, that buy and her are holding AMC stock is, is just, uh, I would, I don't know. I can't describe another, any other way, but ridiculous. Um, if any of you are not familiar with what, what's going on with these two companies, AMC, which is a movie theater chain and GME, which is GameStop. It's these two companies that were, um, you know, essentially defunct companies GameStop uh, owns uh, physical retail stores that sell video games. AMC is a uh, a movie theater chain that you know has movie theaters nationwide. Um, they both got crushed during COVID, uh, and all of a sudden, I don't know what you know. There was this big uh, short squeeze movement where everyone said that they were going to f- try and fight the hedge funds, so they were going to buy stock in GME and AMC. And the price rose precipitously. I mean, it went from two dollars to sixty dollars. And these, you know, two stocks were given the title of so-called meme stocks, right? It's a kind of like almost a joke to buy these stocks, but you know, they went up and they went up a lot. And it established this whole kind of culture about you know buying the stock and holding it, even though you're losing money, is somehow fighting the hedge funds because there's this. I mean, I'm going to have to say a conspiracy theory that uh, there's there all these hedge funds are short the stock and they're going to have to cover and things like that. I mean, I go through and I read on Twitter all the posts about AMC and, and none of it is factually accurate. I'm sorry to say. And 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 reading some of these uh, posts by some of these people who are heavily heavily invested in AMC stock. I mean, I've seen post after post about how people have put their entire retirement accounts their entire life savings into uh, a, a defunct movie theater stock. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just because this, this whole idea that by doing this, you're fighting the hedge funds and there's going to be, you know, this day of reckoning where all these hedge funds go under because everyone's holding the stock and you're going to make all kinds of life changing money. It's just really, really not factual. And it's to be honest, actually, it's really sad because a lot of the people that are you know, writing these posts and these tweets about AMC and, and, and GameStop are people that you can tell by their posts, the things they say, one, they're not very financially educated, which isn't their fault. And two, they feel like, and they're probably correct, that the system has kind of uh, held them down and they're not where they thought they would be in life. And they think their kind of golden ticket is to buy these meme stocks and, and they're in on some sort of community that's going to help them um, um, make all this money. And it's just, it's really sad to see. I've done my best to try and, you know, respond to some of these posts on Twitter and say, Hey, you know, this really isn't true. Like you're just making stuff up about synthetic shorts and all kinds of stuff. You really should sell your AMC. Don't put your life savings into this. And all I get met with is just, is just a barrage of hate. People calling me, you know, a rich guy that works for the hedge funds and all kinds of crazy stuff. So there's really, it's, it's almost cult-like in its fanaticism for, for buying these stocks. And so when I see something like that, you know, to me, I'm like, Hey, this is, this is ripe for, for a short. Um, and so I, I bought, you know, a small put position on AMC just because of how, how ludicrous all this stuff is. And, uh, I, I, I'm starting to see kind of cracks in the dam about people that were saying, you know, I'll hold no matter what, I'll never sell my shares, but now people are starting to say, well, maybe we should 
sell some shares because we lost all of our freaking money. Uh, and so, you know, I did a little short position in that, but my main trade position is I bought call options on the S and P um, thinking it'll go up over the weekend, but who knows? It's very risky to do that. I, I only do that with small positions because when you, when you hold positions over the weekend, you never know what can happen. I mean, um, anything could happen. I mean, there was a, a lesson from a trader. Uh, you might know him. He was in 1994. His name was, uh, his last name was Gleason. I forget his first name, but they made him, they made a movie about him. And, um, he held a, a very, very leveraged position in the Nikkei futures, which is the, uh, Japanese, uh, index. And his name was Nick Gleason. He was a, he was a British trader. He was sent to Singapore and he, basically over leveraged himself and he held a position over the weekend uh, of extremely leveraged position. And on Saturday night, he woke up and realized there was a uh, earthquake that hit Tokyo and basically crushed the, the Nikkei. And he lost, uh, I think it was like 800 or $900 million because of how leveraged he was. He lost so much money that he eventually caused the bank that he worked for to, default and go bankrupt. Um, that's how much money this one trader lost holding a position over a weekend. So holding a position over a weekend is always, always very risky. If you're a trader, um, I only do it with small positions, uh, occasionally if I think the conditions are going to be good. So, but anyway, they made a movie about the guy. Um, the movie's called Lo uh, rogue trader. It was made in 1999. I watched it the other night. It was a very interesting uh, movie to see. So if you get a chance, watch that movie. It's called Rogue Trader. It's about Nick Leeson and how he single-handedly bankrupted Barron's Bank. And Barron's Bank was a big bank. It was This was a bank that funded the Louisiana Purchase in the United States. Um, basically, they are the bank that funded the purchase of you know Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama um, from, from the Spanish. I think it was in 1804. And so this, this is how big this bank was. And this one trader, by holding a leverage position over the weekend, and an earthquake came, caused the entire bank to uh, go down. It's a very interesting story. Um, and the last thing is talking about famous traders. Um, I've been reading a lot about uh, about famous traders, about their philosophies, uh, things that they say. And one of the most interesting traders to me, and and has always been, is is Jesse Livermore. Um, Jesse Livermore is a trader that uh, he started in the 1890s and he traded all the way up until 1940. Um, he, he gave interviews to a journalist uh, over a period of years and they put all his interviews into a book called The Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. And um, some of the book has been fictionalized, some of it's true, but a lot of the lessons in that book are very vital for anyone who's looking to trade stocks. Um, you know, he goes through his, basically his whole life story and this guy has made and lost, uh, you know, fortunes. He's been bankrupt, but worth hundreds of millions of dollars and, and all of it in between. And so he kind of goes through his life story. He started working at 15 years old in a, uh, back what they called a bucket shop back then is basically a gambling house where you can gamble on stocks. Um, and then traded all the way up through the 1999, 1929, uh, crash and depression. And the, the funniest story that I heard, I heard it the other day in a documentary about Jesse Livermore is that, um, 
you know, obviously in the 1920s, they, uh, you know, when you'd go to the office, you probably wouldn't phone back to your house, talk to your wife, things like that until you got home for the day. There's no cell phones, internet. And so in 1929, October 29th, 1929, was a day of the, the Black Tuesday, the big stock market crash. Um, Jesse Livermore's wife was at home and one of her servants basically came to her and told her, hey, the stock market crashed like 15% in a day. Everybody's wiped out. People are jumping, literally brokers are jumping out of windows and killing themselves. Um, and so, you know, when she heard that, she knew, she knew her husband was a, was a big stock market trader. He had all of his, you know, he, all he, all he did his whole life was trade. And so she, you know, assuming that he lost his whole life savings in the market, she started moving her furniture out of the house and moving it, uh, into a guest house because she was afraid the creditors were going to come and take it. And so when he got home, Jesse Livermore opened the door and he saw all the furniture was gone. All the servants were gone. And he asked his wife, like, you know, what happened? Where's everybody? And she goes, well, I heard about the stock market crash. You know, I didn't want the creditors to come, come and take, uh, you know, come and take all of our stuff. And he turns to his wife and goes, I made more money today than I've made in the last 20 years because I shorted the market before it crashed. And so she just, you know, looked at him like in shock. And I thought that was just a really, really funny, funny story and kind of summarizes Jesse Livermore and, 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 and kind of the, you know, his trading mentality, um, by shorting the market in 1929, Jesse Livermore made a hundred million dollars in 1929 money, uh, which today would be over $1.1 billion. So in one trade, he made over a billion dollars and, um, you know, to make that in a trade, not working as a hedge fund, not working as a bank, just to be an individual trader, to make that amount of money is, uh, you know, if, to say extremely rare is not strong enough. I mean, this is just, it never happens. That's a once in a trillion, uh, you know, trade for somebody he, that he was able to time, you know, the 1929 stock market crash. But the, but the sad thing about Jesse Livermore is even though he made the equivalent to a billion dollars in one trade, uh, by 1940, he was broke again. He was bankrupt and he actually committed suicide. Um, and so there are a lot of lessons to be learned from Jesse Livermore in terms of how he traded, the things that he looked for in trading, the way he traded, but also how he lived his life and, and, and how he managed his money. You know, if I'd hope that if I went tomorrow and made a billion dollars in the markets uh, on a very risky trade, I'd hope that I would take 99% of that and, you know, focus on wealth preservation and kind of give up on the idea of wealth accumulation because I would have already made it. You know, Jesse Livermore didn't have that mentality. His mentality was, well, I made $100 million, again, equivalent to a billion dollars today. I need to make $10 billion. And so um, one of the lessons I learned from him is when I make a good outsized gain in a trade, I take some of that and I transfer it immediately into a savings account, a checking account, into a CD, just safe. Uh, financial instruments where I, I am not tempted to try and make up for a loss. I'm not tempted. And that way I'm just booking profits each time that I trade. And that's, that's a lesson that I, I've learned, you know, because when the market starts going down, you start losing money and you start panicking, your heart starts beating fast. It's very easy to look at whatever cash you have left in your account and think, you know, you can get it back to even, you just make a bigger trade this time. 
Um, and you know, that's the, that's the, that's the general gambler's fallacy, right? That, you know, you've lost it, but you can make it back. You can get back to even, then you'll walk away. But, um, trading is, is, you know, it's, it's different than gambling, but in some ways it's the same. Um, you need to be very disciplined in the way that you trade. And, and one of the ways that might be helpful to you that I stay disciplined is after I make a big gain in an outside trade, or I set, you know, a certain amount, once my brokerage account reaches this, I take it out and I put it into, uh, into checking account, uh, uh, money markets, you know, safe investments that, that are not going to just have these giant fluctuations, like, like if I'm trading options. And so if anyone's interested, check out the, the book. I, I listen to it in the car. I have it on audiobook. It's called Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, and it's written by a guy named Edwin Lafave. And uh, it, it's basically just Jesse Livermore talking the whole time and, and talking about his trades, what worked, what didn't, what lessons he learned. And it's a very, very interesting, interesting book. And, and the other thing that I find most interesting from it is how similar, you know, this guy was trading in the 1890s, the early 1900s. He traded through the 1907 crash, the 1929 crash, World War One, you know, and he died right as World War Two or as the U.S. was entering World War Two. But, you know, so it was, a, you know, 100 years ago, uh, more or less, that he was trading. But the, the most interesting thing about the book is how similar markets are today than they were than as they were in the 1920s. I mean, how how similar human psychology is i mean obviously we you know humans haven't evolved in the last hundred years and it's 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 really poignant what people say about the markets that there's nothing new under the sun it's the same thing it's the it's the same cycle of greed and fear the same kind of scams are being run you know now those same kind of you know back then in the bucket shops uh people would gather to you know collude together especially wealthy investors they would pump and dump a stock. They would all go in on a stock. They would, they would make a show of buying a particular stock, right? Cause back then they weren't trading on computers. They were trading in real life pits. You know, they would have their brokers screaming out, you know, whoever it was name, you know, whatever famous trader back then's name, blah, blah, blah is buying, you know, a hundred shares of, of us steel, right? Whatever the stock was. And they make a big show of it. And these little traders who didn't really know what was going on or just starting to get into the game would watch these big traders making these trades and think, oh, I need to follow them. I'm going to jump in with them. But by the time they get in, the stock price is already pumped, you know, from 10 to 20 to 50. And, you know, they're a pool. They're all scheming this together. And they say, sell the stock. And they all secretly start selling. You know, they use different brokerage houses and things like that. So no one knows they're selling. And so they get out at 50. And then when they're out, no one's up there to hold up the stock. The fundamentals don't match and the stock plummets back to 10. And who is it that gets hurt? It's the little guys. And so it's funny to watch, you know, not funny, it's sad, but it's, it's entertaining to watch the same exact things that went on back in the 1900s go on today, but now it's using social media and, 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 and media marketing and, and things like that. I mean, it's just it's all the, the same stuff. Human psychology has not changed. And, and when they say there's nothing new under the sun in markets, it really is nothing new under the sun. And, um, and so when I say there's nothing new under the sun, you know, if you look at, look at past charts, you look at uh, 2000 to 2002, very, very similar to the 2022 chart. If you look at the 2007 to 2008 chart, very, very similar. 
as well as a chart for 1987. And what I mean by that is when you look at the chart, you'll see the you'll see a clear peak. And then if you go a little further down the timeline to the right of the chart, you'll see you'll see a drop. You'll, then you'll see another attempt at a peak, but it doesn't necessarily reach the high price that was set at the original peak. And then from there, you see a little bit of kind of flatlining and then the drop starts. And, you know, uh, the past doesn't always equal the present, but we can learn a lot from the past. And if you look back at these times, um, you know, at these charts, 2000, uh, 1987 and 2007 and 2008, uh, the charts look very, very similar to 2022. And so, you know, this time could be different. Uh, Any time could be different. But um, if you're going to, you know, use historical analysis to trade, uh, it, it looks very eerie or very likely that we will have some sort of a sustained bear market um, over the next six to 12 months. And I think that kind of vibes with the macroeconomic conditions as well as, as, as the Fed. So um, if you're interested in, in, in my trades, the way I trade, I mean, I don't give financial advice, but you can watch my trades. And what I did was People were asking me about this for a long time. So I started a separate Twitter account um, where I post screenshots of all my trades. So you can see I'm trading with real money in real time. Um, and I charge $9.99 a month for that. And basically what happens is you sign up to pay $9.99 a month. Um, and then I will give you the handle of, my, of that Twitter account where I post the trades. And you request me as a friend on there and I will accept it. And you can follow me and follow my trades. And so, I mean, anyone who, you know, I started about a week ago. I have uh, 13 uh, subscribers who follow my trades. And, you know, my account is up 17% since Monday uh, when I started it. So, um, you know, there's always going to be ups and downs. And I don't suggest anyone uh, trade the way I trade or, or, or follow my trades. But if you're interested just to see how I trade, what I trade, and kind of the logic behind my trades, um, you can go to my Twitter account, uh, retirement, right. And on my, my post there, you can see how to, how to sign up for that. Um, and also if you're interested in kind of my, my weekly perspectives, you can sign up for my newsletter at the warrenletter.substack.com. Um, and yeah, those are the ways to reach me. Um, now I'm going to do something I haven't done before. I'm going to ask, you know, there's a feature on this app where your people can ask questions, um, I normally don't do it because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to get, you know, kind of crazy questions or people just, you know, messing around. But I'm going to open this up if anyone wants to ask questions. Um, if not, that's totally cool. You can message me on Twitter um, at retirement. Right is my handle and you can ask me questions on there. But um, I, there should be a way on this app. If you want to ask questions, you can you can go ahead and ask questions. So I'm going to pause for just a second, see if anyone has any questions they want to message me or any questions they want to ask. Uh, and I'll go ahead and do my best to answer those. All right, great. Well, I don't see uh, any questions. I haven't gotten any messages or anything, but if you think of something later on, you can always message me at retirement, right? Is my Twitter. Um, or message me uh, through the, oh, here we go. I have a question. There we go. Let's see if I can figure this out, how to answer this.
Okay, so uh, someone asked, hey, Warren, what's your forecast of oil and gas markets moving forward? Um, okay, so let me pull this back to my – here we go. Uh, so so back when oil was negative in I believe it was early 2020 in the height of COVID, um, I predicted uh, $100 a barrel, $150 a barrel. Um, then when I knew Russia, uh, was going to start their shenanigans and all that kind of stuff, the build up to that, um, I predicted oil at $200 a barrel. Um, right now my forecast is probably somewhere in the middle. I think oil continues to go up from here. Um, I think there's going to be a little bit of a slowdown just because of seasonality in terms of, uh, you know, in the winter people generally use more oil, but there's going to be a lot more people on the road um, um, driving and things like that over the summer. So I, I think oil continues to rise from here. Um, the only negative I would see against the price of oil uh, is probably probably threefold. First, everyone is uh, everyone that's not in the oil and gas business is upset about the high price of gas. Um, you know, and that that is the fault of of a lot of the governmental policies over the years, um, the Russian invasion, all kinds of things, right? So um, people, but the average person, every time they go fill up their car, they see the price of gasoline, which, you know, is related to the price of oil. So politicians are doing whatever they can or are going to do whatever they can to try and lower the price of oil because it, it affects everyone's uh, bottom line, you know, everyone's pocketbook. So I see that as a, as a negative for oil. I don't think there's really much they can do, uh, at least in the short term. I know I saw that they released, uh, uh, they're going to release 180 million barrels from the petroleum reserve, which really amounts to nothing. I mean, it's really going to have not much of an effect on the oil price. Um, you know, what, what will bring the oil price down is to allow drillers to, to drill, to release some regulation, um, to allow pipelines and, and things like that to be built. But all these things take time. You know, it's not like you, you go and you turn on a, on a faucet and now more oil is coming out of the ground. So, so all these things uh, take time. The, the second thing is I see now senators and congressmen are going after oil companies claiming that they're gouging prices um, and trying to make, you know, make it seem like uh, they're setting the price of oil or they can sell oil and gas for cheaper, but they're not, which is, also not true. You know, the price is set by the market and the market is being affected by onerous regulations, by a war going on, uh, things like that. So um, those two things are negatives for oil. But to be honest, I don't see either of them really having a significant effect um, on bringing the price of oil and gas down. And so I still think $150 a barrel is, is definitely in the cards uh, over the next six to 12 months. Um, I'd be surprised if if uh, I'd be surprised if oil wasn't wasn't pretty decently above one hundred dollars a barrel by the fall. Um, I just think that there's so many uh, tailwinds to move the price of oil up. Uh, and the other thing is, it's, it's surprising because the dollar the dollar has been rising because people are getting nervous and they're trying to get into risk off trades, and that's actually suppressing the price of oil a little bit. Uh, if the dollar, you know, drops 10% from here, I mean, that's going to push the value of oil that's uh, priced in dollars up. So I think there's just so many uh, tailwinds for oil price to rise that um, any of the measures that 
that uh, politicians put in place aren't going to affect it. So I think $150 a barrel by the fall is probably a safe estimate, but I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it higher than that. So anyone else, any, any other uh, questions that this is kind of fun. I'd love to, uh, to answer. Oh, okay. And that person said, said, uh, said, thank you to me. Well, all right. Well, I won't hold up any more of you on a Saturday. I appreciate you all listening to me. I'm, I'm going to be typing a newsletter here in a minute. So if you're interested in the newsletter, um, go ahead and sign up there and Otherwise, good luck uh, trading this week. Um, check out some of those books that I recommended, The Aftershock Investor by David Weirmeyer um, and The uh, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator by uh, Edwin Lefebvre. Two, two very, very good trading books, very interesting books. So, Again, everyone have a great weekend. Thank you all for listening, and uh, I'll see you next week.